So I think what most people assume to be the benefit of open source is the contributions you get from the community. But I think in practice, it takes a very long time before contributions start coming in. And and when the contributions come in, they take effort from your end to review and steer and so on. For me personally, the way I see it is open source is an incentive for people to do their best work because it's in the open. It's sort of a public portfolio. In open source, I think there's a bit more of a built-in incentive to have a a higher level of craft because people are maybe a bit more self-conscious, right? That their code is out there in the open. The other thing is in order to make a system be useful across many different organizations, many companies, it requires a a certain level of modularity and versatility and quality that is not necessarily going to be present in, in a proprietary system. Welcome to the Software Misadventures podcast. We are your hosts, Ronak and Guan. As engineers, we are interested in not just the technologies, but the people and the stories behind them. So on this show, we try to scratch our own edge by sitting down with engineers, founders, and investors to chat about their path, lessons they've learned, and of course, the misadventures along the way. Hello, everyone. This is Ronak Nathani, and welcome to another episode of the Software Misadventures podcast. Our guest in this episode is Felix Jeevi. Felix is a principal engineer at LinkedIn, where he works on the data infrastructure team that builds Venice. Venice is a distributed drive data store which LinkedIn open source in the fall of 2022. In this episode, we discuss what Venice is, how it's used for various applications, and the process of open sourcing it. We talk about when a company should open source a project, and what are the benefits and challenges that come along with it. We also discuss when and how engineers should advocate for open sourcing a project. As a principal engineer, Felix also shares his thoughts on balancing leadership with execution, delegating responsibility, and fostering a culture of ownership and growth within the team. Please enjoy this fun conversation with Felix GV. Felix, super excited to have you with us today. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, so we thought we would start with asking you about something that I saw on your LinkedIn profile. So in the about section, you have this line which says, We'll consider opportunities to work as an astronaut or to research a cure for type 1 diabetes mellitus. Don't bother with any other job offers. What prompted this thing on your LinkedIn profile? Yeah, I'm pretty happy with my job right now working on Venice at LinkedIn. I've never really been the the type to just uh, job hop for, you know, an extra 10k or whatever it, it doesn't really enter my compass really I, I like to stick to something good when i got it and there are very few things that would make me consider doing something else and i have become diabetic eight or nine years ago maybe 10 years ago and so that has been something that is very interesting to me to learn more about. And it is a kind of a non-solved problem in a sense. It is a disease that is treated, but which has no cure. So yeah, if, if, if I had a chance to work on that, sure, I would consider it. And of course, you know, being an astronaut sounds cool, so why not? <laughs> but besides that, I'm pretty happy with where I'm at. And I uh, hope my manager doesn't hear this because maybe they'll get some ideas. But yeah, anyway, that's roughly the rationale behind it. So you, you mentioned that the job hopping just for some a little higher base salary is not something that is something that you consider as much. So when thinking about a job and you have been at LinkedIn for I think about what eight, ten years at this point? Since twenty fourteen. Since twenty fourteen, so about nine years now. I'm sure there have been times when you've thought about, hey, maybe trying to do something else, but when you've thought about just working at LinkedIn or just finding another job? Like, how do you think about job in that case? Like, what aspects are important to work at a company for you? For me, I I, I like to be challenged. I like to keep learning. And I've been fortunate to discover the field of uh, distributed systems and big data and stuff like that, which I think is one of the fields that has both a lot of depth and uh, breadth. So in my opinion, you can stick around in that field and do a different job every year, right? And still be doing the same job in a sense, but there are so many different aspects to it. 
So these days, for example, I'm very interested in uh, getting into the nitty gritty details of performance. But before that, there were other phases like working on scalability, uh, stability, or and of course, all of these things are constantly being mixed together on a day to day basis. So it keeps me always on the edge of my seat, especially with the growth that, that we need to deal with. Things are never standing still. So for me, it's been a, a really interesting journey. And I, I, I think I can relate to people who maybe have the same inclination as me to want to keep learning and challenge themselves and that they do that via job hopping. But I think for infrastructure in particular, the projects just operate on a longer time frame, right? If you're working on the product side, then I think it is a much more fast-paced thing where you build something, it's in production for a year and a half, and then you're building the next thing and the old thing gets killed. And you're just always renewing the, the what's on the site. Whereas for infrastructure, you put something out, you're still supporting it five years later. And so it's a very different mindset, I think. And if you do infrastructure in terms of like two years stints in a bunch of different places, then I don't think you get the most out of that field, in my opinion, because you're barely scratching the surface and you're already bouncing off to something else. So it's sort of kind of like drive-by coding, right? Like, oh, well, <laughs> I did something. And before I get to see the gnarly details of how my thing doesn't scale, I'll, I'll be out onto the next adventure. But it's fine for some people, but for me, it, it's just not very aligned with my own view of, of the work. I would agree with that. So you made a post a few weeks ago, sorry, a bit of hard pivot about how watching the Smurfs helped your kids be less shy about speaking Spanish. And then we were doing yeah. some LinkedIn stalking. And so you speak natively, so English, obviously, French, as well as Spanish. And you decided to speak to your child only uh, in Spanish. Like, how is that working well so far? Yeah, yeah, it's working great. So my mother is Quebecoise, so I learned French from her, and my father is Argentinian, so I learned Spanish from him. And, and obviously I learned English because everybody um, learns English I, these days. So, I feel like so, yeah. I, I've been talking to you for, you know, five minutes, and I, I think with that, you know, we're already friends, so I feel like I can make the joke, so... When you speak French, like you won't be, people won't be able to understand you in France. And then when you speak Spanish with the Argentine accent, people won't be able to understand you in Latin America. Is that what you're, what you're telling me? Yeah, basically, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the the, the people from France uh, don't understand the Quebecois accent, although we understand them. So it's, it's very much a one-way street. But the Argentine accent has some little quirks, but I, I think it's probably closer, I would think to the rest of the Latin American Spanish accents. Sorry, maybe yeah. that was a more commentary on my bad Spanish because when I was there for two months, man, the, the first few days was rough. I was like, what, what is this? Well, for, from my perspective, the odd one out in Spanish are the people from Spain because their S's are, are like this and <laughs> it's very different. And they're the minority population-wise. But anyway, so yeah, we speak various languages at home. And so, yeah, it's working out great. So doing a hard pivot back to the world of data infrastructure and distributed systems. So you, you, you mentioned Venus there. Can you tell us more about what Venus is and what problem does it actually solve? Yeah, sure. So Venice is a what we call a derived data store. Uh, so the derived data is what we define as data that's been processed out of other data, right? So there's a bunch of different kinds of derived data. Uh, I did a talk on, on what is derived data at, at QCon in London, so you could check that out if you want to learn more. One of the kinds of derived data is ML feature data, right? So this could be like uh, embeddings or it could be essentially it's floating point values of one kind or another uh, that are used as input to uh, various uh, machine learning models right so this can be uh, the output of some machine learning training jobs and venice is particularly focused on catering to that segment where the AI engineer is going to produce a bunch of data. Maybe they'll refresh their entire corpus every day or a few times a day, or they'll be doing it in streaming fashion. 
And all of that gets pumped into Venice at a very high throughput of writes. So that, that is one of the defining characteristics. It, it supports very high throughput of ingestion. And then the data is going to be read by online applications that do ML inference, basically, right? So, mm-hmm. so the, these are sort of the two of the activities uh, of the ML engineer is, is, or the ML workflow is that there, there's training and then there's inference. And Venice sort of sits in the middle, right? It bridges the gap between the offline environment where the training is happening and the online environment where the inference is happening. That's sort of where Venice sits in, in our ecosystem at LinkedIn. So this question would come across uh, and it will show uh, how much I don't know about the field of machine learning. Uh, so I've heard this term this day, these days called a vector database. Um, is Venice some pretty much a vector database uh, of sorts. Is, is that a fair description? Yes and no. So we started working on Venice, I think, way before vector databases were part of the vernacular. I would say they are some limited support for the types of operations vector databases do. So, so in Venice, th- there are a few different APIs. You can interact with it as if it were a key value store. That's what most people do. But there are also some more advanced operations where you can push down some vector math uh, into the store, into the backend. So things like doing a dot product or a cosine similarity, uh, these types of, of vector math uh, operations can be pushed down and, though, and so they're performed more efficiently because they're co-located with the data, right? So, so, so that I think uh, is a bit closer to the concept of the vector database, but Nowadays, the vector databases that are coming out have uh, way more functionality that they do as well. So yeah, Venice doesn't have as wide a feature set as some of the other vector databases. It it might go there in the future, I don't know. But yeah, hopefully that that helps place things in context with yeah. one another. For sure. So Venice is an open source system, and we want to talk about the entire journey of getting to open source Venice. Before we go there, uh, this LinkedIn also had a distributed data store called Voldemort um, mm-hmm. before this. Yep. Which So did Venice just replace Voldemort in our case? Yeah, so when I joined LinkedIn, I joined the Voldemort team. Voldemort has kind of an interesting history in and of itself. If you want like the two-minute version, essentially, at first there was only Oracle but Oracle didn't scale. So then the myth, which may be true or not, I'm not sure, is that Jay Kreps read the Dynamo paper from Amazon and decided to build an open source version of it on the Caltrain. And so he (laughs) hacked that, you know, as a side project, and then it became kind of a thing of its own. And and then at that point, there were two choices, just Oracle and Voldemort. If you needed scale, you would use Voldemort, but the feature set was quite limited, kind of a key value store. Mm -hmm. And then everything started getting built on top of Voldemort. You had search, graph, OLAP, essentially cubing, and then a bunch like counter services. And of course, uh, the output of ML jobs uh, was one of those things. So all of that was getting pumped into Voldemort. And then... Over time, we started specializing more. So the graph stuff went into another system specialized for that. The search stuff went into Galene. And the OLAP stuff went into Pino. The counter stuff as well went into Pino. And then what was left after everybody has had chipped a part of it was what we called Voldemort read-only, which was the act of batch pushing massive data sets every day that were immutable. What we saw at the time was that stream processing was up and coming, right? And we thought that was the next big thing. But when you did something with your stream processing, the output of that was like a a Kafka topic or something like that. And then that was not really amenable to bringing it into the online experience, right? And so we saw that the engineers were very productive with Voldemort, where they could do their offline jobs, do very complex things with, you know, at the time it was like Pig and Hive, but then later on Spark and other things. And they could do whatever they wanted there and very easily push the data and into Voldemort and have it be servable online. 
And so with Venice, we wanted to kind of bridge that gap for streams as well, right? So essentially, we wanted to do what Voldemort did for offline. Uh, we wanted Venice to do that for streams and also do it for offline as well, right? So essentially, kind of a, a different scope. And so that's how we got started on Venice. And then eventually, we, we were running both systems in parallel for a few years. And eventually, we decommissioned Voldemort in 2018 just in the nick of time for the GDPR deadline, basically. So that was the forcing function to to get Venice to to full scale. Yeah. So that's kind of the, the brief history of data infra at LinkedIn. One quick follow-up. So when you mentioned kind of merging the real-time and the offline sort of like feature engineering, right? So getting your features in. I remember when mm -hmm. I was working on this at a small startup we so we use redis and which i guess also keval store and then i remember the challenge part being that it was kind of this catch-up game right where the offline stuff takes a very long time to run so then you know in the it's almost like a lambda architecture thing where right you have basically the job taking like 10 hours and then you're basically doing like the real-time stuff for or like the streaming for like the nine hours or to kind of bridge the gap so that the data is not stale. Is that a lot of the use cases when you say like kind of merging the two or is it, are they like just yeah. different types of features? Yeah. So, so Lambda architecture is one of the workloads we support in Venice in the traditional or, or I, maybe I should say original presentation of the Lambda architecture. It was presented as like two completely different systems, right? You had your batch job pushing into a, a, a batch-friendly store, like maybe Voldemort read-only or, or something else. And then you had a stream processing job pushing into like more of an online kind of store that can be mutated one, one row at a time, which was sometimes referred to as the speed layer. And then the online application needed to read both, and it needed to do some kind of reconciliation of the two, right? Like if I get the record only in stream, then I return that. But if I get the record in both, then maybe I need to check like some timestamp or whatever and, and decide, right? So so that was the original Lambda architecture. And when designing Venice, we wanted to cater to that, but we thought the this original design of Lambda architecture was not that great because there were lots of moving parts. And especially in the online application, because you needed to interact with two systems, you were bound to suffer from the weakest link in the chain, right? So your latency was going to be the slowest of both, and your reliability was going to be the worst of both. So with Venice, we are pushing the merging part upstream, right? Instead of happening in the online path it, at read time, it's happening in the ingestion path at right time. So Venice is a, a, a single database that will ingest batch input and ingest streaming input, and it orchestrates the merging of these two so that when the read comes in, it's just a single request that reads the, like the outcome essentially of, of this merging. So that's kind of the philosophy we went with. I see. And then the trade-off there is that even though there might be some latency or staleness to the data, but the performance is much better. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so there is staleness kind of built into the architecture. Everything is eventual, but we thought that was not a big deal because the output of the batch processing and the output of the stream processing are anyway stale in any case, right? Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. So, so it doesn't really matter that the last mile, like between the stream processor and the online key value store, if that part is strongly consistent, it doesn't really matter because everything that came before that is stale anyway. So we can kind of do the design trade-off of extending the staleness end-to-end -end into the architecture. And by doing that, we achieve much better ingestion throughput, and we didn't really lose anything from the end-to-end -end standpoint. Cool. And you mentioned that the idea of building Venice was a few years ago. Can you place us where in time that was? Yeah. It originally started as far back as 2014, the year that I joined. We were looking for a solution to this kind of unlocking the power of the stream processor output. 
And we actually had a, a prototype of something that was doing that on top of Voldemort, but it was very janky and uh, not, not very robust. And so we started thinking, like, what would a first class system for this look like? And then we got an intern and we got that person working on Venice. Actually, the first commit in the Venice code base is from that intern called Clement. And then we got the project approved, you know, beyond kind of just internship scope. And then, unfortunately, we got sidetracked after that for a few years. We had like competing priorities. So Venice was kind of shelved for a while as we needed to make some some big investment inside Voldemort. And then we picked it back up in earnest, I would say, at the beginning of 2016. Uh, that's when we had a, a fully staffed team that started working full-time on it, and we worked on it throughout 2016. And by the end of 2016, we landed in production. So, within, so about one year of, of full team, full-time development. And at that point, we supported only the batch functionality. So we didn't have stream yet. But then we got started immediately on, on stream ingestion as well. We had that in production about half a year later. Around the same time, we stopped the self-service onboarding of new data sets onto Voldemort, instead redirecting them to Venice. And then, so at that point, we're like in mid-2017, and then right then started the G GDPR craze, right? Where everything had to be rethought, and Voldemort didn't have any access control, no authentication, no authorization. So it wasn't going to cut it. And we, we had built those security features from the beginning in Venice, anticipating that, you know, for a, a next-gen system, that was a must-have, right? So... So we kind of took the opportunity of, of all the migrations related to GDPR that were happening anyway to say, well, you know, it's time to retire Voldemort. And so that was a pretty massive migration. We migrated maybe 500 data sets in the span of two, two or three quarters. So Venice went from like zero to one pretty quickly. And then... And then that brings us to mid 2018, where where finally we could kind of shed all of the operational burden of Voldemort, focus completely on on Venice, and then after that the scope and scale of Venice has continued to increase year after year. So yeah. And you open sourced Venice sometime I think last year, I think around September 2022. So was it always? Yeah. 2021, okay. So was there always uh, a plan to open source No, Venice? actually, you're right. Sorry about it. 2022. <laughs> no, no worries. We'll, we'll actually link your talk that you gave at, I think it was at Strange Loop. Yeah, I think we'll, we'll, we'll link your talk in the show notes so that people can watch that talk. I think it was a good one. So yeah, what, getting to the open source part, like was there always a plan to open source Venice eventually? Yeah, actually there was. So the, the Voldemort team was developing Voldemort in the open. And so for for that team, it, it felt natural that the replacement of Voldemort should be open source as well. And we already had kind of the, the, the habit of separating the open source part of the code from the proprietary part of the code, like the, this kind of decoupling that is critical to making the project open sourceable was already kind of in our DNA in a sense. So we started Venice with that structure from the beginning, which I think helped uh, a lot. So yeah, it was the intent from the beginning. And what triggered us to open source it in this case? Like what, what made you realize that, okay, at this point it's, it's good enough that now is the time to open source it? So although we started with the right structure in place, over the years, unfortunately, we did let a little bit of tech debt slip in and we did become, I, I wouldn't, well, I'm hesitant to say tightly coupled, but, but let's say we were slightly coupled with some internal pieces of, of infrastructure. And so Venice had become something that, that could not be open sourcedly, but we still wanted to do it, right? So we were, we were working hard to to try to avoid making it harder to open source, but we didn't really have the 
necessary effort going on to unwind these pieces of tech debt, right? That were kind of holding it back from open sourcing. And, and that is why it, it took many, many years to open source, because if it weren't for that, I think we could have open sourced it many years ago. But then what happened is there were some opportunities which which were coming from internal needs, right, to refactor some parts of the system. And I, I think those are always great opportunities to, to rethink not just a very specific need in hand, but the the bigger picture as well, right? So whenever you rewrite a component, you should think, well, you know, what else is wrong with that component? Can we kill two birds with one stone, right? So as part of that, we improved the reliability and the performance of our replication architecture, the cross-region replication. And, and that was one of the pieces that was tied up to some internal stuff. So we, we got rid of that. And then after that, what was left that was still internal was, was extremely minimal, right? So at that point, it, it, it became kind of realistic to say, well, look, you know, we can put one person working for a few months and, and then it'll be done, right? And fortunately, LinkedIn has a strong culture of open source, especially in the infra teams. So th there was support for doing it. But the support was there, I think, because we were so close to begin with, right? Like if, it, if we had said, well, look, it's just going to take half the team for, for a year, then that would not have flown, right? It is a lot of work on a continuous basis to keep the project in a in a shape mm -hmm. that is open sourceable. Like for you guys, what was the draw to open source it? Was it like the publicity you get out of it? Was it like the community around it that you can like get feature and get help from the community? Like what was the draw to make it open sourceable in the first place? So I think what most people assume to be the benefit of open source is the contributions you get from the community. But I think in practice, it takes a very long time before contributions start coming in. And, and when the contributions come in, they take effort from your end to review and steer and so on. Plus, the contributions may not be in, a, in the direction you're interested in anyway, right? So contribution-wise... I don't think that's the main draw, right? For me personally, the way I see it is open source is an incentive for people to do their best work because it's in the open. It's sort of a public portfolio of sorts. So while proprietary projects could be cutting corners and because all that matters is, is the deadline or shipping, etc., in open source, I think there's a bit more of a built-in incentive to have a, a higher level of craft because people are maybe a bit more self-conscious, right? That their code is out there in the open. The other thing is in order to make a system be useful across many different organizations, many companies, it requires a, a certain level of modularity and versatility and quality that is not necessarily going to be present in, in a proprietary system. And so that's another angle where quality gets uplifted or has the potential at least to be uplifted. That's super um, interesting. I, I would never have guessed that. And But that makes a lot of sense. We're talking to Nathan Mars and they, he mentioned that they have this system where they randomly like pairs people for coding together or just in pairs. And then that... And to me, I was like, oh shit, yeah, that would definitely keep me on my toes in terms of, you know, keeping my code more in thing. I think, yeah, here it makes a lot of sense that if you're yeah, building in public, the power of Git blame is nice, nice. <laughs> and, and then from the angle of the business, you know, well, quality is nice, but is it going to be the main incentive business-wise? I, I don't know. And if we don't get much from contribution, at least not for a long time, then then what is there for the business, right? So for the business, I think the incentive is mostly around like talent brand. You know, I was talking to a director or something like that in the Hadoop world, offline world, and he was saying, the best tool in my toolkit to hire people is that we're the company that open sourced Kafka, 
and they're not even working on Kafka, right? They're sort of fairly far off from, from Kafka. They're doing the offline stuff. But still, just because in another pocket of the company that that's a project that came out, it encourages people to, to say, oh, well, this is a place where, you know, people go do their best work, right? So yeah, in terms of recruitment and, and retention, I think there's a benefit. Although re- retention is kind of a tricky one because sometimes open source projects end up causing kind of a brain drain. But I think if the company positions itself well with the community and doesn't kind of antagonize and and so on, then it can serve as a positive on retention as well. Uh, It has that potential at least. So as you mentioned, like there's a cost to open sourcing a project, not just from starting it, like making sure it has either no or loose coupling with internal systems, but also making sure when a company puts its name to an open source project, the quality is really high, the craft is really good. So it takes extra effort beyond just making sure, hey, this thing works, it's it's good quality, it's production ready, but you want to make sure it shines when, it, when it's open source to the public. So there's extra work that goes in there. And there has to be a business incentive for a team to spend time and effort to do it. And this is a question that many engineers ask either themselves or their managers, like, hey, we should open source a system. And more often than not, they get a no. And for for valid reasons, which may or may not always make sense, but from a business perspective, it does. So for engineers to kind of think about this business perspective, have you thought about what's a good way for engineers to, one, think about when they should pitch to open source a system and how they should go about pitching it to their managers? Yeah. So like you said, we want to put out good work, right? We don't want to put out some shoddy, half-baked thing. So... So you have to kind of take a hard look at the project and really kind of be honest with yourself. And, you know, is this really some first class work or are we just kind of riding along with it because it's tech debt and it's too too costly to unwind, but not that great to share either, right? So going to open source, yes, I think there are lots of good reasons for doing it, but there should be a question, is this particular system within the company first class in any way compared to what's out there? Or, or is it the first of its kind to be open sourced or not, right? And, and if the answer is no, and there are other open source alternatives that are better, then it may be the case that it's actually better to just scrap the internal project and adopt some open source thing instead. Maybe, right? And and that's always a tough decision for the people involved in the project, but, but it's a decision that needs to be made sometimes. So, so yeah, essentially it comes down, in my opinion, to it, would this contribute to the state of the art in the industry and uh, along some dimension, maybe not along all dimensions, but is it like the best in terms of security? Is it the best in terms of performance? Is it the best in terms of anything, right? Or Or, or at least is it close to being the best right Mm. like uh, maybe it's not the best in any one thing but the the mix of all these various dimensions we care about is sort of high enough in a way that maybe no other system strikes that same trade-off right that becomes i'm assuming that becomes a conversation with with the leadership team to say this is exactly why we should place the system in the open source and this is the work that would that it would take and these are the potential benefits you would get out of it uh, so before actually going into pitching this, it makes sense for engineers to kind of do this homework or research themselves to figure out, is it even worth open sourcing in the first place? And whether it has, whether it at least meets the bar for a project that should be open source and then think about the business incentives. In my experience, I I haven't seen the conversation happen in this way. Like a lot of the work needs to come from the team. I think it's like a lot of upfront work needs to come from the intrinsic desire to to do this. And that's like pre-work, right? That That's like before you even consider. Like it's not like you flip the switch of making it open source and everybody's habits will change overnight, right? If the if the habits to do it are not there to begin with, then it doesn't look too good to go there. So like I was alluding to earlier, I think you have to be very close to pulling the trigger 
before it even makes sense to to have that conversation in a sense right if you're like many person years away from being able to open source the thing then it's not even worth having the yeah. conversation but if you're very close and it's really just a matter of you know tidying up a little bit of documentation and changing some access rights on, on the github or whatever then then of course then we have the conversation like well we have this opportunity right here you know we think it's first class in these dimensions and the team is interested in in doing this different way of working right which, which in some ways is going to be higher effort but the team is motivated to do it so then at that point at that point the rest becomes a bit of a formality although there are lots of formalities to to jump through but there are kind of formalities i would say did you have to convince your teammates to like pursue this together in that a little bit like in on a day-to-day -day basis like it always comes up in the sense of like we need to build this new thing this new module or whatever are we going to build some abstraction around like this proprietary thing we're integrating with or do a direct integration right and of course there tends to always be a bias towards the simplest path the path of least resistance which is an okay bias to have for the most part right but you have to kind of drill down into the team this habit of, of well is this the better approach in terms of craft right and if the team's not interested in it then it's probably not worth forcing it right but if the team is consistently making the choice to go in that direction then at some point it builds momentum and it sort of becomes self-reinforcing go about building that culture within the team so there are two parts here right one there is a strong leader within the team both on the technical side as well as support from the manager to to put in this kind of work and create this culture and then the second aspect of maintaining that culture over the years how do you go about doing that lots of code reviews i guess i don't know <laughs> because like um, as you said if the team's not interested having those conversations seem forceful or to a point exhausting to be honest so at one point a person might get to a place like you know, why why even bother but let's say they want to change that have have you do you have any thoughts around how one could go about changing that well i think one part of it is picking your battles right so a team you know usually a team doesn't work on a single project right like it, it it's like maybe a single umbrella where everything is kind of coherent and related together but at the you know concrete level they're working on many 10 or 20 different git repositories right and so sometimes the it's just a matter of making the right initial decision that kind of railroads the following decisions in a certain way right so for example you say well this particular piece we know it will need to be tightly coupled to a bunch of internal things so should we build it from the get go as a proprietary thing rather than you know build half of it inside the open source and then have a like a very large surface area of of abstractions to kind of hook it all together and then if you end up ripping the two apart then the the half that remains in open source doesn't even make sense on its own anyway right so so it's a matter of of trying to find where the integration point should be right so for example like we we have a, a system within the the Venice team at LinkedIn which handles our self-service onboarding for our internal users. Well, that thing is proprietary and it's tied up with a bunch of other proprietary things. And the only interface it has with Venice is like the sort of admin interface that that can be used by either by a human operator or by this self-service console, mm -hmm. right? But but if we had tried to pull parts of the self-service console into the open source mm. then we would have a much larger surface area of internal things to to integrate with via abstractions so so a lot of it is about choosing scope mm. and then following decisions can be easier i like that though it's asking yourself the question of oh right would this project be open sourceable or like do we want to is having like thinking about whether that would be an option and that kind of changes how you think about the decision boundaries and how you want to scope the project. It's cool. So like, once once you open sourced Venice, 
maintaining an open source project is different from doing your day job uh, on projects which are internal to the company. So what does what does it look like to to maintain an open source project? So in one sense it it's the same and in other in another sense it's different, right? So when you're writing code, it doesn't really matter whether you're pushing that to a private git repo or a public one, right? Yeah. You're just writing code. And either way you have a code review process and and you know it's basically the same. Mm-hmm. The the difference happens uh, at the boundaries, right? Like, which is sort of what we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. The integration points at the edges of the project is is where the decision making is different. Then the the other aspect, which is like kind of n- non coding related, but more about the rest of the processes, mm-hmm. is like how do you make the design process open? How do you make the, let's say, release certification process more transparent and and so on? And that part is a journey that that we're still going through in Venice. And I think we're, we're not as far along as some other projects that are more mature in the open source space. So although we we want to go in the direction of opening up these developmental processes we we've only partially opened them up so far and that i think is another thing that requires ongoing effort like kind of encouraging the team to work more in the open but 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 then that brings up sort of a similar concerns in the sense that well if you're writing a document about some new functionality like one part of that's going to be the justification for it and maybe the justification is some internal use case well now if if the document is proprietary you can shove all of that in a single document right but but if it's if it's an open source effort then you you kind of have to abstract away the justification saying well we think that some people are interested in this category of workloads, but then you avoid saying that it's this particular team mm. or or that particular product that is requesting it. And, and there may be some like very specific product details that, you know, you don't want to leak yeah. through that channel. And maybe in the most extreme case, it might even end up being like that, that you have two documents instead of one and you have sort of the internal counterpart to the open source document and and so it, it's a bit of extra overhead so so yeah that's still kind of a transition we're going through uh, i don't know if we'll go all the way hope i i hope we will but yeah we'll see we'll see where that takes us one aspect of having an open source project be more successful is also the community around it so adoption matters like internally there's one system to use and if people want to write to a distributed derived data store like well venice is the choice in the open source world, a project becomes popular when it's adopted by different companies or different teams, and eventually they also want to contribute to it. So have you been thinking about or spending time on building a community around it? Yeah, yeah. So we, we have a an open source uh, Slack that people can join. It's all linked from the, the main page, venisdb.org. So people can join that. And we have some people trickling in that are asking questions and so on. Uh, there, there's also this thing, I don't know if you heard of it, called uh, Linen. Linen is some service that allows you to import your whole Slack in a way that is publicly accessible and searchable. And it skirts around the fact that free Slack instances have a, a retention limit on the messages. <laughs> so you, you can go there and search all past conversations of, of the Venice Slack instance. And, and there's some good kind of troubleshooting and, and just general advice lingering in there. So, so yeah, that's one aspect. We we try to do a community sync up every two weeks. We haven't been doing it exactly every two weeks because, you know, sometimes the people on the Slack tell us, oh, well, we won't be available that week or whatever. So then we just skip it. But but it's there if, if some people want to have a more kind of direct interaction. Interestingly, the the community members that we got so far are mostly in Central Europe. So time zone wise, it's a little bit of a challenge, but we settled on a schedule where it's like 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern time and 5 p.m. Central mm-hmm. European time. A bit of a stretch for the Pacific and the Europeans, but 
at least we we can get get everybody together and hash things out. So, yeah, that that's what we've been doing so far. And one of the things we wanted to chat about was like your principal engineer at LinkedIn. And for for folks who might not know, but being a principal engineer is being on the individual contributor track, which is equivalent to being a director if you were on the managerial track. So, at this point, working on Venice for for over the years. How do you think open sourcing Venice played a role in just your personal brand within the community? Because as you mentioned, you're showing off your best work in a way. And at this point, you've been talking about Venice in the community, giving talks at conferences. So how has that impacted just your personal brand? So the honest answer is I'm not sure. Maybe some external observers might have an opinion. So before joining linkedin and and towards the beginning of my time at linkedin I, i was doing the conference circuit like a lot more as an attendee not as a speaker and i i was really into that and always sort of keeping my finger on the pulse of everything that's coming out and then after many years at linkedin i, I you know i was so busy with the internal stuff that i kind of lost track of things in 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 the rest of the industry for a while and now i'm sort of reemerging out of that and and trying to get to grips with the 10 million systems that came out in the last few years and all that stuff. So so I I'm going back to the conference circuit and it's been interesting so far. Yeah, it is nice to share the work and and speak to people about it. Although I don't know if that answers your your question really. <laughs> no, it it definitely helps. It definitely puts a perspective as to at least what it looks like from your side. And I I understand an external observer might be able to share more about what it looks like from a from a brand perspective okay before before we close off we're getting towards the end i mentioned that you're a principal engineer at linkedin and a lot of things would keep you busy they would involve like bunch of meetings working on wns mentoring other people and there is an aspect of as you grow as an engineer you spend more time on leadership and relatively you spend less time on execution what does that look like for you and how do you usually make trade offs or balance that so there's been a few different phases to my career at linkedin at first i started off as an entry level engineer and i was doing a lot of hands on work and then gradually started being involved into more meetings and such and and you know more of the leadership side as you were saying and then that that went to the kind of far extreme of that spectrum where for a few years i was literally in in meetings all day like from morning to to evening and and there were times where i would look back on like my contribution history and i i did like let's say a one line config change in the whole quarter like that's all i did technically speaking right everything else was sucked up by by meetings may, maybe some documents and you know i i enjoyed doing that for a little while but after two or three years of that i felt like i was starting to lose grip on on the project in terms of like w- what was really happening on the ground and i could see it also like i i never stopped being on call throughout this right and i could see that my on call shifts were getting like harder I, i i just wasn't as familiar with things anymore and then at that point you i think everybody in that situation gets to some kind of fork in the road right like some people say well i should just get off the on call rotation and focus on the the thoughtware right the documentation and people talking and so on or you let the pendulum kind of swing back in the other way right so so for me i felt like i was missing the technical work the hands on work and i wanted to get back into that and interestingly that that sort of coincides with when the pandemic happened and for a while the pandemic was sort of business as usual like right we were doing just as many meetings as before and and so on except it was remote but then at some point i think things shifted where maybe because some interactions moved to slack or whatever instead of face to face meetings but but the upshot is is the meeting workload started diminishing a, a little bit 
not not a lot, but it was still like a large part of my time, but it was starting to diminish. And it also made me realize I can do my work without face-to-face meetings. I can do it remotely, right? And then around that time, for family reasons, uh, we decided that it was best for us to move back home to Quebec, uh, Canada, and on the East Coast. And I was fortunate to to be granted the opportunity to do that while staying in the same uh, team and company. And so now that I was on the uh, East Coast with the rest of my team on the West Coast, I had this large chunk of time in the morning without any meetings. So then I could really reshape my work in a direction that I, I had been want- wanting to go, but but I, I couldn't really go in earnest. And, and so I, I essentially took the opportunity of this move to, to make it more formalized that I, I will now focus a bit more on the hands-on work and I'll still be available for meetings in, in what is, you know, my afternoon and, and the Pacific time morning. But essentially, it, it's sort of like half of my day now instead of my whole day. And I have I have been coding a lot more than before, which I like, and, and getting getting to grips with with the project again. And so yeah, that's been kind of my my own personal journey, and yeah, it's been working out. Well, th- there's definitely something I would I would take from that experience personally. I need I need to do that too, and I moved to the East Coast as well. And some of the morning time is bliss. Like that that's been helping. The other th- question that I have on similar lines is when you stop doing some of the meetings you were going to, someone else has to take up that responsibility. Like usually as, as a lead engineer on the, on the project, you spend a lot of time either telling people how to use a system or how not to use a system or have conversations about how it should be integrated with X, Y, or Z or the new features that, that need to come in. If you do less of that, someone else has to do more of it. So when you went through that process of formalizing some of this what what did that look like yeah so so i've definitely had to develop the habit of delegating a lot more and i used to be in the loop for everything right and i liked it this way for a while but but now i have to i have to make a conscious effort to to get out of the loop essentially because my time can easily become a bottleneck scheduling wise and i don't want to slow down the team right so whereas before when somebody throws a a meeting invitation at me that conflicts with something else i would like uh my default answer in the past would have been well you know i can't make it that at that time but this looks important so let's find another slot and here's maybe uh two or three choices you you could pick from or i i would kind of go out of my way to make it happen some other time and now my default answer is well i can't make it to that slot but that's okay right there's a this or that other person so instead of saying like here are two or three other slots that you could get me here are two or three other people you could get info about this thing you're interested in, right? And I think that has given more space also for the rest of the team to grow. And uh, I definitely lean a lot on the other leads of the team. This is definitely not like a single lead team. We have a lot of very good people working in the team that that I lean on. So it's kind of a, a shift in the default response. And then sometimes, not very often, but sometimes I, I would override that default and say, well, no, this is actually something I do want to be in the loop with, but then that will be a very intentional decision, right? For a very narrow set of things. And, and it, concretely, it doesn't happen that often, but, but every once in a while. Uh, like, Essentially, if I think there's a good probability that with the right people in the meeting, the right decision will be taken or, or like one of the right decisions, because oftentimes there, there is not a single right decision. But if one of the right decisions is taken, then it's fine. But if I suspect that there's a chance that I might have some grievance with whatever decision is going to be taken and then then it ends up needing to be redone, then that's a waste of time for everyone, right? So. But that doesn't happen very often. And in some cases, it's the other people that insist, well, no, actually, we 
would prefer Felix to be there, so they will try to reschedule, but I guess that doesn't happen that often either. But but it, every once in a while it does. It's sort of like picking your battles, I guess. I thought you were going to say, that's not my problem, but you took the more humble way. I like it, I like it. Uh, so I have this question. It's not fully framed in my head, so if it falls off, like we can cut it out. But as you mentioned, there are multiple leads on the team and they, they're focused on different parts of the project. Oftentimes when this happens on a big project like this, uh, so like, let's say you presented at Strange Loop. This was around the time uh, LinkedIn open source to NS. What does that look like where like, you got the opportunity to present? Was it you saying, I want to do this or this should be a strategy to open source in a way? W- was there someone else who was interested in also doing that maybe or presenting when it's somewhere else? Like, What does that dynamic look like within the team? Yeah, good question. I guess I've been doing most of the kind of shopping around for conferences, I guess, within the team, but it's not always me that that does the conferences, right? So for example, the next one we're doing is at QCon San Francisco and it's it's going to be presented by one of my teammates called Galgie. He's going to be co-presenting actually with another guy called Alex from the performance team. It's going to be a talk focused on the performance aspect of Venice, which is, like I said earlier, it's a subject I'm very interested in. But I figured, you know, since the talk is in San Francisco and there's like the whole team there, I felt it's kind of silly for me to fly, go nab the talk, you know, while there's a bunch of very competent people that could be doing it instead. And yeah, I also encourage, you know, other team members to submit to the call for presenters we don't always get taken of course but yeah i encourage uh, others to to do it as well so yeah i i try not to hug the spotlight all for myself there there is many people working behind venice and i want to make sure they get recognition and also you know conferences are fun but at the end of the day i don't want to be on the road all the time like i got a family here and so on that i want to spend time with so you know, maybe like one conference a year or something is is what I feel is the right balance for me at the at this moment. And if there are more opportunities than that, then I would probably redirect them to my teammates. In this case, like, does your team as a group decide like which conferences you want to go to or what kind of topics you want to give like present on? Like, is there some sort of an internal discussion or coordination or this is just individuals coming up with ideas and then going with it? It's a bit of both, I guess. Like in, in, in some cases, so, so we present also at meetups, not just at, at conferences. So in, in some cases, it's like this meetup is coming up. We are told we could get a slot in it, but, you know, we have to come up with a subject and then it becomes kind of a team exercise to brainstorm what subject are we going to do? Who's up for doing it? Obviously, it's work to prepare that, right? For most conferences, it's it's a bit more of a formal process, right? You have to kind of decide upfront what your subject's going to be, and you pitch that to the organizers, and and there's the CFP process and so on. And then there are some conferences like QCon where it's not really a call for presenter; it's more like that the track leads are handpicking who they want, so it's more of a you know, you got to know the right people and they might ask you and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's kind of a mix depending on the venue. Felix, what's your favorite story of, what is the parentheses, software misadventure? Hmm. What's my favorite misadventure? At some point, started learning Mandarin without knowing it because <laughs> some of my teammates were talking in in Mandarin among themselves. And then one of my teammates asked me like to ship something and I gave him some feedback on the on the pull request. And then then he went to someone else who was sitting in like right in front of me and talked in Mandarin about it. And <laughs> and he basically asked the other person, hey, can you ship it for me? Because Felix didn't want to or something. <laughs> And then, oh no! And and then, I don't know exactly how that unwound itself, but like, I, I sort of gave them a look or something, and then, and then the, the other person was like, "Well, you know, 
just, you know, if you got that feedback, you gotta go address it. I mean, he, I don't know if he might have given the ship it otherwise, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I mean, that, that was kind of a funny moment. I thought, I thought yeah. you put, you put on a, like the live Google translate audio and then like pointed over and then <laughs> the direct translation was <laughs> Felix won't ship it for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> nice, nice, nice. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, I'll take it. Pretty good. Thanks. No, that's, that's a good one. I kind of, I want to learn more languages at this point, which, which may be a per- personal goal. So Felix, this has been an awesome conversation. Thanks for sharing so much about Venice and your personal journey. Before we bring this to a close, is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners? Not really. Thanks for having me. I just want to say again, the, the website for Venice is venicedb.org. So check it out if you're interested. We got our Slack there, our blog, all our, all our resources. So that's all. Thanks a lot for having me. We'll link to everything about Venice as well as Felix Hsu in, in our show notes where people can find Venice as well as learn more about yourself. And again, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a lot of fun for us and I'm sure it'll be a lot of fun for our listeners too. All right. Well, thanks, Felix. Have a nice day. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and learn more about us at softwaremisadventures.com. You can also write to us at hello at softwaremisadventures.com. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, take care.